Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Nikhil Krishnan, a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Cambridge. One of the reasons we were uh, excited to speak to Nikhil is that he's putting the finishing touches to a book right now. Uh, the provisional title is A Terribly Serious Adventure, and it's a narrative history of philosophy in Oxford from 1900 to 1960 or so. So for roughly the first half of our conversation, we get a whistle-stop tour of some of that history. Um, in part, this was fun just because this slice of history is predictably full of some very eccentric characters and anecdotes. Um, but also I think it's useful to humanise the practice of philosophy and you know to see how dysfunctional it can be even in a hallowed place like Oxford. And then in the second half, we talk about the present state of academic philosophy, as well as the place of universities and academic journals more generally. This was quite a natural break in the conversation. So if you're not sure the history stuff will float your boat, then this starts around the 50 minute mark, where we ask about Henry Sidwick's case against the lecture. There are also chapter markers to jump to specific parts of the episode. Um, so obviously feel free to use them if certain questions stick out more than others. Last thing, apologies for the occasional audio hiccup in this one. I hope it's not too distracting. In any case, we started by asking Nikhil about his route to philosophy. So um, I grew up in uh, the city of Bangalore in India. And when I was growing up, uh, almost everyone around me was some kind of uh, engineer. And in those years, we're talking about the mid 90s, uh, the most exciting kind of thing you could do was to be a programmer. So I spent a lot of my uh, childhood and adolescence um, surrounded by people who were or wanted to become programmers. So lots of quite um, skeaky world where you went and things like Boolean algebra competitions where, um, yeah, and kind of debugging events where you kind of give them bits of code and so forth. So that's that's what my initial interests were in. Uh, as I grew up, I began to get a lot more interested in humanity subjects, particularly in history and in English. And I had no idea that one could really do these things in at university, and if one did, how one turned into a career. So uh, what I ended up doing was what looked like the most humanistic um, subject that was also quite mathsy, which was economics. So I first did a degree in uh, a small college, uh, also in uh, in Bangalore, in economics. And in the course of that, I realized that the bit of economics I was most interested in was the history of economics. So I was thinking of 18th century economic thought, Adam Smith, and that kind of um, intellectual world. And so uh, I applied to do another undergraduate degree, this time in the UK, um, which I got to do because I got a scholarship that took me there. And this time around, when I, I did some more economics, but in combination with philosophy and politics. And very soon after I um, started doing those other two subjects, I realized that um, I wasn't all that interested in economics after all, and these other two subjects were a lot more interesting. So it was philosophy, particularly moral and political philosophy, that got me excited. And then I applied again for uh, a master's and then a PhD in philosophy and got funding to do them. And that's basically how I landed up where I now am. And I guess one thing you didn't mention about what you're up to now is that you're putting the finishing touches uh, to a book about something like the history of analytic or what gets called linguistic philosophy, uh, in particular in Oxford, in kind of the first half of the 20th century. Um, so I think we'll start by 
talking about that and as good a way as any to start is just by painting a picture of what academic philosophy looks like at the turn of the 20th century. So, you know, what were the questions people were keeping themselves up at night with and who were the kind of key figures at uh, the turn of the century? Sure. So um, if we're talking strictly about the turn of the century, around 1900, um, things at this stage aren't terribly exciting, especially at Oxford. Um, You have this generation of people who've got into this rut and the series of debates that's been going on since the mid-19th century where you've got to pick a side in this old debate. And that debate is between, uh, on the one side, you have the realists, people who believe that there are things which are just out there, they're part of reality, and what philosophy is supposed to do is to discover the nature of reality. And this reality is something that um, wasn't put there by us, right? It isn't the creation of human beings. On the other side, you have the idealists, and very crudely, the idealists are people who think that the fundamental constituents of reality are ideas, right? So there's nothing really Um, that we can know about what's out there. The most that philosophy uh, can do or should do is to explore the content of human ideas. So if you're a philosopher, someone who's studying the subject in Oxford uh, in this period, you need to choose between these isms, right? Uh, Either idealism or realism. And as a result, there's not a huge amount of energy around it. Uh, There's not very many people who want to do philosophy and people who want to do it uh, don't have very much to say. They feel like everything that's worth saying has been said by somebody else, by, I don't know, Barclay or by Kant or some other, one of the great dead philosophers. So people generally think of themselves as just making the same moves again and again. So the way I start my book is by giving a sense of how dull things might have seemed if you were young, promising, kind of clever um, student who's starting at Oxford in this period. And so I look Uh, at this period through the point of view of this philosopher called Gilbert Ryle. And Ryle is someone who's born in 1900, and he arrives in uh, Oxford 1918. And when he's there, he's pretty frustrated by this thought that all you can do in philosophy is to choose between idealism and realism. And once you've picked your position, you just kind of go on endlessly defending that um, in debates with people who live down the road from you. And Ryle is one of these people who is just intellectually voracious. Um, He's very clever. He's very good at languages. Uh, he's also um, an athlete. He's very much kind of one of these people who seemed like he was fun to be around. And so, uh, Ryle teaches himself Italian. He teaches himself German. He travels to these countries and he starts reading what kind of philosophy is being done there. And the third thing, the most radical of these things that he does is to read the kind of philosophy that's being done in Cambridge, um, which was even more radical at this period than reading anything out of Germany or Italy. So he discovers that much more intellectual energy in these other places. So in Germany, you've got this new movement called phenomenology. In um, Italy, you've got um, people who are just transforming the old-fashioned kind of idealism, and they're making it uh, into something that's got things to say about society and politics. And in Cambridge, people are applying this uh, new method that they're calling analysis. And so Ryle says, well, all these kind of senior guys around Oxford, these people with names like Um, John Cook Wilson and um, Harold Pritchard, they're they're not really interested in reading anything that's not written by someone else, another kind of um, 60-year-old Don at Oxford. Uh, And he was worried that he was going to miss out on something interesting by ignoring those other currents. So he starts to bring these ideas back to Oxford. He translates them or he gives lectures on them. And that's when things really start to get exciting, when um, the kind of very dull parochial Oxford philosophy of the 1890s, 1900s, gets slowly supplanted and introduced to these provocations that come from Cambridge, from Germany and from Italy. 
It makes me wonder, um, to modern lights, this question of idealism is just incredibly silly. And it sounds like, at least in Oxford, uh, the kind of great lights of philosophy just got trapped arguing over this thing that just doesn't matter. And it raises the question of how an entire discipline, uh, at least at like a particular university, get stuck in this rut so badly like what was stopping someone from just coming along and starting a new conversation presumably there's more than just kind of inertia going on right yeah that's an interesting one so i'm also inclined to think the question of idealism versus realism is interesting but i think (laughs) is just when you think that there's no other question worth pursuing and that's what's worse is when you think that doing philosophy involves taking a position of that debate and then just defending the positions of one's party. It feels like uh, a kind of partisan or tribal conflict when what you should be trying to do is to get to the right answer. And who knows, the answer might be something other than one of the available isms, or it might involve changing or rejecting some of the things that um, other people have said, even if they belong, if you like, to your party or tribe. So to your question of uh, why was it so hard to change things? I think the most plausible answer is um, the one that you said uh, it couldn't be, which was inertia. But I think the question is rather, why was there this inertia? Why was, uh, and one answer to that is just the nature of the institutions in which philosophy is done and the extent to which these institutions encourage innovation. Now, um, Oxford is a, um, a university that then, and to some degree even now, is, understands itself to be a place for the education of undergraduates. Uh, to train them in order that they can be ready for life in certain professions. Right? So the, the bar would be one, the church would be another, very occasionally um, the military. Uh, and of course, in this period, the civil service and more generally the colonial service, you're kind of sent off to India or Africa to be an administrator. So when you ask yourself, well, what kinds of philosophy would be done in a university that thought of its primary role as being educating young people, well, specifically young men in this period, uh, for these kinds of jobs? And it's hard to see that um, innovation or novelty would be uh, uh, would be smiled on, right? So that's one, one part of it. The other part of it is um, when you see your purpose as primarily that of being a teaching institution, then there aren't going to be any incentives to go and write your own stuff, um, to go and ask these questions. Um, what Most of your day is going to be spent doing teaching, and in Oxford, uh, in this period, and indeed uh, now, a lot of the day-to-day work of the the lecturer, the, the philosopher employed by the university, was to give these quite time-consuming, labor-intensive, one-on-one tutorials, as they're called there. And, um, Many of these people just did nothing else. They'd start the day and have tutorial after tutorial after tutorial, and syllabus reform didn't often happen. It was very hard to make happen just because uh, there were so many colleges, so many different views, all these different camps. So when you couldn't decide what changes to make, you ended up just sticking to the same thing you'd taught before. So I think the explanation for the inertia is ultimately institutional. It was the fact that nothing in uh, the self-conception of the institution uh, made innovation possible, none of it encouraged it. And so I don't think it's that surprising that uh, it did get stuck in the kind of rut I've just described. So uh, I guess moving ahead in the history of philosophy, at least in Britain, uh, you get what gets called the linguistic turn, right? Where people kind of change their attitude towards what they think about what they're doing when they're doing philosophy. Can you just say something about what this kind of linguistic turn means? What analytic philosophy means and how it contrasts with this old way of doing philosophy, which sounds like arguing in circles about minds and worlds. So if um, 
if we're trying to trace the linguistic turn back um, to a certain point in the history of philosophy, it probably happens a little bit before the period I've just described. It actually happens in the late 1870s, except it happens in Germany. So no one in Oxford is um, reading what's, what's happening there. So um, to the extent that there's one place where the turn happened, it's with a German mathematician and philosopher called Gottlob Frege. And um, there are people who think you can identify the moment of the so-called linguistic turn to a particular paragraph in his work, where he's reflecting on an old question that seems pretty significant, namely, um, what are numbers? Like, what, what are these things called numbers? We can do all these things with them. We can, have, we can come up with all these cool equations. We can put them to all these uses, some of them practical, some of them theoretical. But what are they? What is their nature? And Frege has this brainwave, which is to say, look, let's just put aside this question of what sorts of things they are, because by asking what kind of thing they are, you're starting with the assumption that they must be things of some sort. It's not clear that numbers are things. But it still seems like that we should be able to say something about what we're doing when we're thinking about numbers. What is the, What kind of thought is it that we're engaging in? And so he says, well, here's a thing we might do. Let's not worry so much about numbers as things and instead ask ourselves, what do these thoughts mean uh, that we have when we're thinking about numbers? What is the meaning of our mathematical thought? So it comes as a linguistic term because it moves away from thinking about things. So let's call that the kind of object-focused philosophy or entity-focused philosophy. And instead, you start thinking about your words. And in the beginning, it's about our mathematical words, but it doesn't have to be about that. It could be words of any kind at all. So instead of thinking about, I don't know, ethical things like goodness, what is this thing goodness? You ask yourself, what does the word good mean? Instead of asking yourself, what is reality? Ask yourself, what does the word real mean? And when you push the question of meaning, part of what you're trying to do is to make better sense of what kinds of distinctions you're marking, real as opposed to what, good as opposed to what. So, uh, what you have now is first a kind of transformation of the subject matter of philosophy. You're not thinking that there's all this stuff out there, goodness and reality and numbers. Instead, you're saying there are these features of our thought. And what we want to understand is what kind of structure um, that thought has. And you want to map that structure. You want to trace the links of different parts of that structure to each other. And uh, the other thing that this kind of linguistic term allows you to do is to give yourself a method. So why I think it seemed exciting is that it actually gave philosophers something to do, right? And in doing that, we were understanding something um, that we kind of half understood because we were clearly already using these words. But what we hadn't done up to this point was to pay really close attention to the structure of our thoughts. So in one sense, you might think of this as a kind of idealism, right? Because it's kind of saying these questions are not about something that's out there. It's about something that's in here. And indeed, some people would call uh, this movement a particular form of, of idealism, a linguistic idealism. You think that ultimately all philosophical questions are questions about language. But the hope is that once we answer these questions about how our language works, we'll realize that we've basically said everything we need to say. What more is left of the question of what are numbers once you know exactly how we do and should think about them, right? So, uh, so the thought is that you replace these old fruitless inquiries into the nature of things and replace them with a better understanding of how our thought works. You mentioned Frege, as I understand it. He was only really taken seriously kind of after the fact. Um, how do his ideas originally looked quite eccentric, quite strange, how do they arrive on the shores of, of Britain and end up in Oxford and take over the kind of world of Oxbridge philosophy? Sure. So one of the differences between the kind of philosophy that's done in Oxford at this point and the kind that's being done in Cambridge is that um, at Oxford, 
The only way in which you can study philosophy is by being a classicist. So you've got to do this degree, um, which is partly in uh, ancient literature and history and partly in ancient and modern philosophy. Right. So you do this course. Uh, and as a result, you can get through these four years of university education and indeed uh, many, many years of school education before that without encountering any maths or any science. Now, things are very different at Cambridge, where the tradition was um, you could study whatever you studied, but you'd also have to study maths to a pretty advanced degree. So some of the most interesting philosophers who come out of Cambridge have been trained in mathematics. And perhaps the most uh, eminent of these mathematicians was Bertrand Russell. And Russell is someone who starts engaging with these larger questions, not just about uh, within mathematics, but questions about the very foundations of mathematics. And that's where he discovers the work of Frege as this person who's been working, you know, far away in Germany on these basic questions about, um, you know, what is the meaning of our mathematical language? What are we doing when we're thinking mathematically and so forth? So, um, Russell carries on with um, his his friend and academic partner, um, A.N. Whitehead, and they pursue this kind of train of thought that Frege's already set going. And at the same time, they realize that the kinds of methods they've been pioneering in order to address these basic questions, the philosophy of mathematics and in logic, there's no reason why you can't apply them to other parts of philosophy as well. The way in which I think these ideas come to Oxford is mostly through the influence of Russell. And to some degree, once people start kind of getting the hang of the kind of thing Russell is doing, it doesn't matter so much whether they're reading Russell or not. The kind of ideas are in the air. They're part of the currency of everyday conversation. So if you're a young, um, enterprising philosopher, as Gilbert Ryle, whom I mentioned earlier, was, then um, even if you're not particularly interested in the actual maths, and indeed, if you're not particularly competent to deal with the maths, because all of your education after this point has been in Greek and Latin, uh, you can still get something of the spirit of the kind of analysis, linguistic analysis, that people like Russell are doing. And you realize you can apply it to um, any number of areas in philosophy, even those that Russell and Frege weren't particularly interested in at this point themselves. So the move that happens with people like Ryle is that they say, look, until up to this point, we've been asking these questions like, you know, what is goodness? What is virtue? And so forth. But for each of these terms, we can apply the same uh, methods of linguistic analysis and we'll get some kind of illumination. Either we'll get the answer to those questions or we'll realize that we were looking for the answer in the wrong place. That's a simple crude example which will illustrate that uh, appears in a paper by Gilbert Ryle that he publishes sometime in the early 1930s. It's called Systematically Misleading Expressions. And that's a paper in which he says, well, here are some um, sentences. Right? Here's a sentence. Unpunctuality is reprehensible. Now, that's got the same grammatical structure on the surface, at least, as, I don't know, um, tables are rectangular. So it's saying there's this thing called unpunctuality, and it has this property of being reprehensible. And he says, well, the trouble with that is you look out in the world and say, where is this unpunctuality? What shape is it? What color is it? What size is it? None of the usual questions you can ask about physical objects apply to something like unpunctuality. So he says, why don't we forget for a moment about the surface or superficial structure of, of this kind of sentence and instead treat it as an unfortunate and misleading way of putting what could be put in a much more clear way if you said something like, if one is regularly late to things, then other people will have a tendency to dislike you. That's basically uh, what the sentence unpunctuality is reprehensible means. But because it's stated as this kind of conditional, right? It says, if you do this, then this will happen, rather than saying there's this property of reprehensibility, which attaches to this mysterious object called unpunctuality, um, you realize that you don't have to worry about um, what philosophers would call an ontological claim. 
right? A claim about what exists. You don't have to ask yourself, well, what kind of special, mysterious, immaterial existence does unpunctuality have? All it means when you're talking about unpunctuality is that, you know, some people are just late all the time. And once you have said that, it looks like this pseudo question that you might have been inclined to pursue about what is the nature of things like unpunctuality is just not a question you're interested in pursuing anymore. So you can actually ask yourself slightly more fruitful questions instead of these non-pseudo questions. I'm really curious as well about what you said there with people like Bertrand Russell embracing maths and and logic as well. Could you maybe give some examples of the types of questions where this would be really relevant of applying these uh, new tools to, to philosophy? So one of the things that mathematics tells us is that behind the structure of like particular calculations we do, there lie some more basic and general principles. And once you've got those more general principles, you can apply them to a variety of different particular cases, right? So once you've got like the general formula for how to find the square root of something, you can apply that to any number, you can find the square root of that number. So there's a more general principle here you could get for philosophical activity that behind the apparent and a variety, disparateness, multifariousness of uh, linguistic expressions, right, of, of language, that actually is a pretty simple structure once you can discover what that more simple structure is. So that's the most simple moral you can get from uh, doing mathematics. And so you can apply that to a number of different things. So the most um, famous and in some ways notorious example of this comes in the analysis that Russell gives of a simple English word, the so when you use the word the in sentences like, say, um, the present prime minister of Britain has messy hair, it's really hard if you just take the word the by itself and say, what does the mean, right? It's not the kind of thing which even a dictionary would be able to help you with. So what are you doing when you're asking yourself what the means? Well, one answer to that is you try and work out what kind of contribution it makes to the meaning of the sentences in which it appears. So you explain the meaning of particular entities, not as if you can take the by itself and ask yourself, what is a the? There is nothing that is a the, right? But what you can say is something about what difference is made to the meaning of a sentence that has the as opposed to one that has a or doesn't have any article at all. The kinds of places where uh, Russell himself applied this kind of analysis was to sentences like this. Um, the present king of France is bald. Now, the reason why that sentence is interesting in a number of ways is that it's not immediately clear what you want to say about it, right? So if you know um, that there isn't a present king of France, France is a republic, then uh, you might ask yourself, well, what is that expression, the present king of France, referring to? And if it's not referring to anybody, then what should we say about sentences like, this person is bald or is not bald? So the, the thing that Russell tries to do here is to say, well, here's what we're saying when we're saying, when you're calling someone the present king of France. You're saying that there is at least one person who is the present king of France. There's no more than one person who's the present king of France. And that one person who is the present king of France is bold. And of course, once you, you've got that kind of analysis, um, you've done something, well, what could be quite interesting if you're into this kind of thing, which is... Um, You've seen just how much is packed into that single word, the, right? But what you've done is unpack it. This kind of method tells you that you can take uh, that simple word and break it up into particular claims. And those claims can by themselves be evaluated as either uh, true or false, right? So you can say in Russell's case, he wanted to say that this sentence, the present king of France is bald, is ultimately false because there isn't 
um, a, a present king of France. But the thought is, this is just an example. It's not terribly interesting in itself, and it's not like we're particularly interested in the king of France and uh, the state of his hair. But the thought is rather that it gives us a model for how to engage in analysis more generally. So you can do that with things like, no one is coming down the road. Right? Again, that sentence has the formal structure as if there's a certain person called no one, and this person, no one, is coming down the road. Right? Um, but of course, that's misleading. It's not true that there's any person called no one. Um, so instead, you translate that initial sentence into something like, it is not the case that there is a person such that that person is coming down the road. And so you keep doing this kind of thing with different sorts of sentences, and you'll realize that a large part of our language, which looks like it's making claims about things existing or not existing, is actually not doing anything of the sort. And by attending to the logical structure of these sentences, we can expose that. And you apply that across the board, and you'll realize that a great deal of the philosophy we were previously doing uh, was basically a big waste of time. I guess the kind of the next chapter of this story of um, this kind of arrival of like new methods of analysis is that they start to get applied to different kinds of philosophy. And when people do that, they end up thinking that a whole load of the things we're used to talking about in philosophy, talking about God or ethics or metaphysics um, is nonsense or meaningless in a literal sense right and this movement kind of gets called positivism right can you just say something about that that idea and how it kind of arrived and grew in oxford sure happily so the word positivism is itself pretty old and it's existed at least since the 19th century and the word positivism here is sometimes used interchangeably with this other word empiricism and basically positivism and empiricism are two labels for a certain view about how we get knowledge if you're an empiricist or a positivist, you think that the main, perhaps the only way in which we can get knowledge about the world is through our senses. And so you see things, you hear things, you touch things, etc. So that's how you get knowledge. So if you're a positivist in this sense, then you're going to be extremely skeptical that there's some kind of knowledge you can get from something other than the senses. And moreover, you're going to be skeptical that anything exists in the world of which we can't have knowledge in this way. So if someone says, oh, there's a God, but you can't see this God, you can't hear this God, so God doesn't enter into any kind of um, causal relations with other phenomena in the world, but nevertheless, this God exists and you should worship him, that's going to sound pretty suspect, right? So the thought is you can apply that to a number of other things, not just specifically to God, but equally you could say, well, what about beauty? Strictly speaking, we don't see beauty. We see particular things and we call them beautiful, sure, but it's not clear that there's this thing, this property called beauty that we see. The same you might say for goodness. What is this thing goodness? How much does it weigh? What color is it? The fact that you can't give these kinds of sensory answers to these questions about the nature of things like beauty or goodness might make you skeptical about their existing at all. So positivism in the 19th century um, isn't in this way a kind of radical doctrine. It isn't out there to overturn traditional faith or anything of the sort. It's just meant to be a kind of approach to how we should pursue questions in philosophy. And basically it's saying we should pursue them in the same way that we pursue questions in the sciences, right? You go through this process of observation, inference to the best explanation. Um, you come up with theories, you test them through experiments. That's the kind of method we want in philosophy in the same way as in anything else. What you don't do is close your eyes, sit down in an armchair and use some mysterious faculty of intuition to just commune with these eternal truths. And you say, my intuition tells me that there is God and there is goodness. So that's very crudely, and it's a bit of a caricature what I've given, but it's, it gets you to the heart of what an empiricist and positivist thinks and why their views matter. 
Uh, you said there was a particular form of uh, positivism that emerges in the 20th century. And um, this is the kind that emerges in uh, Austria, specifically in Vienna, in a group of philosophers, mathematicians, scientists who called themselves the Vienna Circle. And there are a number of figures uh, in that in this period. We're talking about the 1920s and 1930s who came to be really prominent. There was one called Moritz Schlick, uh, another one called Otto Neurath, and perhaps the one who later came on to be the best known was Rudolf Carnap. And these are all um, people who... Um, adopt this kind of old-fashioned uh, 19th century positivism, but they connect it to advances in uh, modern science, particularly in physics. They're really excited about physics, right? And all these new things that the modern physics of the 1920s and 30s, discoveries about the structure of the atom, that kind of thing, um, is telling us about the world. And they want to say, look, science is where the action is. So if we're going to do philosophy in a respectable way, it's not just all about the spooky metaphysical stuff, then we should be led by achievements in the sciences. So that's the new kind of, uh, of positivism. So it's what's new about it is that they make one exception to this general rule of making everything about what can be accessible to the sciences, and that's uh, logic. They don't think that logic is simply a matter of um, psychology. So people in the 19th century, most notoriously John Stuart Mill, um, the British philosopher who defended this position, thought that the same kind of um, picture of you know, making extrapolations or inferences from sensory observations that you do with other kinds of empirical scientific inquiry, you can apply that to maths and to logic as well. And at this period, they want to say that's not quite right. Like logic and maths are a special case for reasons that are, are really tricky to explain. I'm not able to do it just now. Uh, but the thought is, that's what makes them logical positivists. It's because they're saying that ultimately, all of the kind of language we use about the world is about what can be verified through observation, Right, um, So they apply this test of, can this bit of our language be verified by observation? If it can't, then you'd better hope that it's the one other kind of language that's meaningful, which is uh, what are called analytic propositions. So a sentence like, vixens are female foxes, or um, bachelors are unmarried men. Now, those sentences are true, and you don't need to observe anything to to know that they're true. Right? All you need is to know the meaning of the word bachelor, and then you'll know that all bachelors are unmarried. But that's very different if you say something like all atoms are composed of a proton and a neutron. You certainly can't know that simply by analyzing the word atom. So the thought is either you know things because they're contained in the meanings of words or you know them because you observe them through the senses. Uh, there's nothing else. Anything which doesn't meet one of these two tests for um, meaningfulness is just meaningless. It's nonsensical. Okay, so at this point, I think we need to switch gears from the history of ideas to another very real kind of history, which is that the war arrives around this point. Um, can you say something about what kind of changes that entailed? Presumably uh, philosophy and philosophy at Oxford was shaken up, at least to some extent. And also, was there, was there an upside? Was there any kind of uh, creative destruction that this involved? Were there any benefits? So the biggest way in which the war affects um, philosophy is that um, well, very little of it gets done because most people uh, have more important things on their minds. So a number of the most uh, important philosophers of the period, the young promising philosophers, um, are called up for some kind of military service. So some of them actually go and fight. Um, others uh, do other kinds of work like intelligence work at you know, Bletchley Park and similar places. Uh, other people go off to do other kinds of intelligence and a lot of what these people do is shrouded in secrecy for obvious reasons. Some of it was, uh, was secret. But 
if they're going around trying to defeat um, the Nazis, then, well, they're not doing much philosophy at the time, are they? So what happens at Oxford, and presumably in um, other universities as well, is that they're emptied out of basically a, a couple of generations of, of philosophers, and not just philosophers, people in all subjects. But that still leaves some people behind. It leaves behind um, some of the older generation, right? some of these people who were basically kind of the last surviving Victorians are still around because they're too old to fight. Uh, it leaves behind um, people who are invalided out of army service. And most importantly of all, and this you might say is the upside of uh, the whole thing, is that women for once um, get to have Oxford to themselves, right? And they get to have these lectures to themselves, these opportunities to talk to each other, uh, to do philosophy in settings where there aren't these cocky men talking over them or telling them they don't understand what's going on. So um, the upside, I think the main upside would be that you have this extraordinary generation of female philosophers emerging during the war years. And one of them, the one who um, was until very recently alive, called Mary Midgley, uh, did in fact say what I just said, which is the reason why their generation was almost unique. Uh, the number of illustrious, uh, eminent female philosophers who came out from there was that they got the chance of a proper um, education where they weren't constantly bullied into silence or submission. Um, so the styles of philosophy that come out during this period, I think, are in many ways a lot more serious than the kind of thing that was being done the 10 or so years before then. So before then, the style was very much kind of cocky. It was about coming up with the killer argument, the knockdown objection. Lots of it was pretty macho. Lots of it was about posturing. It was about kind of showing someone up an argument. It's a little bit unfair what I'm saying, but only a little bit, right? But now when you have um, philosophy lectures or seminars where you have these um, women who've had to go through extraordinary barriers before they can even get to a university like Oxford, and you have some other people who are conscientious objectors, other people who have a disability, then the whole tone of things is changed. It's no longer about, you know, winning, humiliating your opponent. Um, and the way Mary Mitchley puts it is, we actually um, could get started on looking for the truth. And we could approach the search for the truth in a cooperative spirit, not in a spirit of adversarialism. So I think what the war does is it kind of has a kind of reboot. It sends some people out of philosophy. It takes them outside of their comfort zone. It throws them into these quite unprecedented kinds of experiences, experiences of combat, experiences of war logistics, experiences of espionage. Um, and the other thing it does is discourage styles of philosophy that are entirely about um, dialectical victory, right, about having one up over your opponent. I think um, an interesting lens with which to like learn more about what this cohort of female philosophers were thinking and writing about is is ethics. Seems to me that this was a kind of center of gravity. Can you just say something about? I mean, take your pick of what you want to talk about, but the kind of direction they were taking um, these questions about the nature of the good and meta ethics and just what we ought to do. Sure. So I think the quickest way of getting there is to first maybe say something about what the what was increasingly becoming a kind of orthodoxy in ethics up to this point. So if you were reading in you know, the stuff by the positivists of Vienna in the 20s and 30s, then one message you'd get from that style of positivism is that any kind of language, any sentence which can't be verified through observation is meaningless. And as such, nonsensical, um, to the extent that it's meaningful, it's not meaningful in the usual way that scientific sentences are, are, are meaningful, right? So you've got to think of it in terms of what kinds of feelings you're expressing towards the world. 
to the most notorious and crude form in which this kind of view was expressed was um, in, in a certain view of ethics called emotivism, where the idea is that you understand sentences like, I don't know, murder is wrong, um, as not really saying anything about murder. It's not saying that murder has this property of wrongness. Rather, what you're doing is just expressing your own feelings, emotions, or attitudes towards murder. And so if all you're doing is expressing your attitudes, then sentences like murder is wrong can't be true or false, right? So if you're disagreeing with someone else about one of these questions that you know, dominate so much of our actual ethical thinking, questions like you know, um, euthanasia or abortion, then it looks like there's no truth. And if there's no truth, then what are we doing disagreeing? Um, there's as much point disagreeing there as if you know, I was saying strawberry is best and you're saying vanilla is best. Right? There's, there's, there's nothing at stake and it's not really a disagreement anyway. We're just each of us expressing our own um, attitudes. I think in the, the period after the war, uh, this kind of view becomes less and less popular. There are some people who still think that there's something basically right in it, insofar as we shouldn't say uh, that ethical sentences are true. But the kinds of views that become more popular is where instead of saying all you're doing in ethics is expressing your attitudes, um, there are philosophers, the most famous of them is a man called uh, Richard Hare. And Hare thinks the model we should have for understanding these kinds of sentences is um, imperatives. So everyone knows that a sentence like shut the door is perfectly meaningful, right? There's no problem with it. It's not sort of metaphysical or spooky or embarrassing in that kind of way. But it's also true that um, shut the door can't be true or false, right? What would it mean to say it is true that shut the door? Um, so the fact that a sentence can't be verified doesn't mean that it's pointless or silly. It just means we need to understand how that bit of our language works. And so you had some philosophers who said the way in which we should be understanding ethical sentences like murder is wrong is by taking them to be like imperative sentences. So very crudely, when you say murder is wrong, you're effectively saying don't murder, right? And of course, don't murder can't be true or false. What does it mean to say it's true that don't murder? But it can still be various other things. It could, for instance, be rational to require someone not to murder. So you could say things like don't murder with authority, so these other notions, notions of rational authority, become a, a lot more important in um, one set of views you get in from the fifties onwards. On the other side, you have these um, female philosophers, people like Philippa Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, Iris Murdoch, Mary Midgley, and with them, I think the way they think about it is that it's a terrible mistake to make all of this about language. So in a way, you might think they're resisting this broader linguistic turn to say that the only respectable philosophical questions have to be linguistic questions. So what they're saying is, sure, the language is interesting. We need to understand it and analyze it. But ultimately, what we want to do is to see this kind of language as part of a set of human practices. Right? What is the form of life that we inhabit in which words like good and bad, right and wrong make sense? So it's not just a matter of taking these words or sentences and working out their deeper logical structure in the way that Russell would have done. The point is rather to say, what goes on in the kind of life where people use words like good? What are they hoping to do by using those sorts of words? So looking at language becomes a way of just understanding human life, human practices, human psychology. A general word for this kind of alternative, slightly less linguistic approach is naturalism. So you think of human beings as part of the world of nature and human beings as having forms of life, certain characteristic kinds of behavior, certain sorts of psychology. And the point of ethics is to understand uh, and deepen our understanding of, uh, of that psychology. So where this previous generation would have said, 
psychology is for psychologists. Let them do it in whatever laboratories or whatever psychologists do. It's not like any Oxford philosophers were studying any psychology at this point, right? So they just thought that it's someone else's job. While um, these philosophers I've just mentioned, Murdoch and Foote and Anscombe and others, are saying that there is a kind of psychology that philosophers can do. And that doesn't involve going to a laboratory. It involves this careful project of self-understanding. So that's basically the kind of um, set of approaches here. Do we think that it's all about analysing language or do we think it's about understanding the larger structure of thought um, into which we can place ethics? Looking back then at just the story of like early 20th century analytic philosophy, I don't think it's unfair to say that you can more or less tell that story just bouncing between Oxford and Cambridge. Maybe you take a little excursion to Vienna you know, we we go to Germany for a bit when we're talking about Frege. And also all the characters are very similar, right? They're typically very well off, they seem to mostly come from surprisingly well-connected families and so on. And I guess I want to ask, what does that say to you about like philosophy as a discipline, at least then? And also, how is that changing? What's the kind of situation now? No, that's an interesting question. I think the first thing to say is that in a way we don't really know what philosophy would have been like if it hadn't been dominated by these places. Because it wasn't that there wasn't philosophy being done in other places. There was a really interesting movement in Manchester around this time. There was interesting uh, philosophy being done throughout the 19th century in Scotland. So I think maybe the, the story to be told here is that philosophy, most intellectual activities aren't immune to the general facts of politics, general facts about power and authority. So the reason why the kinds of philosophy that we hear the most about are the kinds that were done at Oxford and Cambridge, um, these other kinds of dominant, powerful institutions, it's not because they were somehow intrinsically better than the other kinds, but simply that they're the ones we're likely to have heard about. That would be the, the most pessimistic version of the story. I think the other story you can tell is that institutions like this one, because of the large amount of power and wealth they had, also attracted some of the greatest uh, energy. So the fact that they had all this money and were able to employ dozens and dozens of people to do philosophy, which very very few other institutions in the world could have done uh, in this period, meant that it was possible for them to have a kind of um, critical mass of people. When you have a certain number of people all pursuing their own projects, then good, exciting things start happening. Uh, and that's not just true in philosophy, it's true in the sciences, it's um, true in you know, entrepreneurship. Um, startups come out from places where there are lots of people trying out their different startup ideas. So I think that's the best way, of, the most charitable way of understanding what's going on here. So I think one thing it tells us is that it's really hard to just do philosophy by yourself. And that's a strange thing to say, because you think that unlike other disciplines, it's really low cost, right? You, you, you need a chair, maybe, that's about it. You just sit by yourself and think. But in practice, I think it's very rarely been the case that someone managed to reach these deep, interesting, novel insights just by thinking by themselves. Um, it turns out in practice that really when exciting developments happen is when people are together with other people asking similar questions, getting challenged. And that tells us something um, interesting and I think quite uh, positive about, about philosophy, which is that it's not a discipline that involves pure solitary thought, but one that involves uh, conversation and cooperation. But uh, if I can just address the other point here about the class composition of, of this period, I think there's uh, less of a charitable story I can tell here. Um, it's definitely true that pretty much every philosopher in this age was um, somewhere between extremely upper class aristocratic and only upper middle class. 
uh, there's not very many people in this period, at least none of the famous ones who come from working class backgrounds. That does start to change in a very uh, significant way after the Second World War. And it's not just philosophy that's like that, it's society more generally. It's got to do with, you know, the, the, the Labour government elected shortly after the war in 1945. It's got to do with new policies, the creation of a welfare state, a different attitude to school education, whom it's made accessible to, uh, different ways of funding a university education. So I think there's nothing distinctive to be said about philosophy here that doesn't apply to universities and education more generally. I think uh, philosophy becomes a bit more plural, diverse, allows people in from different backgrounds when those people are, have access to education and to universities more generally. So in this period, I think it is a huge shame that it was as narrow as it was, but I don't think it was any more narrow than some other disciplines or subjects. What, one thing that I think is really interesting is that when we kind of started this story, we were kind of talking about the bubble, right? That Oxford and Cambridge were not just together, but also right in of themselves with Oxford people just debating with each other and not even daring to to read Cambridge work and write. And that kind of seems to link to, to what you were just saying about, um, you know, being surrounded by people who can kind of stimulate your ideas and you can kind of talk with each other as well, because it, there does seem to be this, this trade-off, right? Where on the one hand, it might be great to have a lot of other people thinking uh, about the same questions, but then on the other hand, as it was at the start of the 20th century, that can also lead to this kind of insular environment where people kind of lose sight of the bigger questions or new ideas that then get generated either in other places like Vienna or requires um, very different types of people, right? As you mentioned with women and um, underrepresented groups getting into philosophy during World War I. Yeah, I think the, the big problem is when you stop realizing that you're making assumptions or that the way in which you do philosophy has presuppositions. And the best way of becoming aware of the assumptions you're making is by being in the presence of people who don't share those assumptions. Um, and if you don't have those people and you just have a bunch of people who all agree with you about pretty much everything, then uh, you won't have any disagreement. Uh, and if, to the extent that you'll have disagreement, it'll be about the really minor, nitpicky, pedantic details. And I don't think that's healthy for any kind of intellectual inquiry. Is there a figure from this whole story of Oxford philosophy who you really wish was more widely discussed or more widely known? Yeah, I'd probably give you a different answer depending on when you asked me this. Um, so today, just given what I'm, um, my current mood is like, I think I'm going to say Elizabeth Anscombe. Now, Elizabeth Anscombe is a really, really interesting person in a number of ways. Um, she was... Firstly, she was a Catholic. She converted to Catholicism in her late teens. And the thing she's most famous for is uh, the role she had in uh, the life of this other philosopher we haven't uh, really enough mentioned so far, and that's Ludwig Wittgenstein. Now, Ludwig Wittgenstein was this Austrian philosopher who spends most of his uh, intellectual life, at least, in Cambridge. And um, he has a reputation up to the 1940s of being a bit of a misogynist, someone who... Um, doesn't like women, doesn't like women around him when he's discussing philosophy. But somehow Anscombe, who arrives in Cambridge in, I think, 1942 or 43, uh, managed to get past those prejudices he has. And over the course of the next seven or eight years, she becomes one of his closest confidants. And eventually when he uh, knows he's about to die, he decides that she is going to be one of his literary executors in charge of his estate. And she's going to be in charge of translating uh, the book he was then working on. And so when you get a copy of 
you know, the big book that Wittgenstein was writing in these years called The Philosophical Investigations, um, the standard way in which you'd get it in the English-speaking world is in an edition that has Wittgenstein's words on one side and Anscombe's translation on the other. Now, so far, even if that's the only thing she'd done, um, that would itself be a considerable achievement. It's a really weird book. It's really hard to work out what he's saying. And Anscombe's translation sort of captures some of the weirdness of Wittgenstein's style. The fact that he doesn't quite argue for anything. He doesn't lay out arguments step by step. Lots of his arguments are just kind of questions or thoughts he has or things he's wondering about or things he wants you to do, think about for yourself. And she really captures that sense of slight mystery, obscurity. But in the 50s, after Wittgenstein dies, she becomes very much her own woman. And she starts to apply some of Wittgenstein's method and style to questions that he didn't say very much about, specifically questions about the nature of action and intention. What is it to do something intentionally? And that is actually a really hard question to, to, to answer. And there's a very tempting way of answering that question where you say, well, what happens is that we have these things, actions, and actions are ways in which your body moves. And then there's an intention, which is this kind of immaterial state of your mind, right? And what you do when you're acting intentionally is that you have two things. You've got an action, you've got this other thing, an intention that's somehow attached to it. And she wants to say this whole way of thinking about intentions as if they're things in your mind is just a really dodgy way of uh, describing what's going on. Right? Uh, and a much better way of thinking about this question is not by saying, what is an intention? Because that makes the same kind of mistake that people were making in the 19th century when they were asking, you know, what is unpunctuality? Rather, you ask yourself, what, what is distinctive about what you're doing when you're acting intentionally? And then she develops this whole picture in this quite short, quite weird book that's just called Intention. So I think it's about 97 or so pages long, uh, but it could have been a thousand pages long, just given how um, complex and bizarre some, some parts of it are. And in the course of that book, one of the things she's trying to do is to say, even though what we're doing here is just trying to understand what a human action is, ultimately it's going to have these pretty deep consequences for how we think about ethics. The obvious reason, which, which is that ethics is about action, uh, and specifically about intentional action, right? Good and bad, right and wrong. These are words that we apply to things typically that we've done intentionally. But it also um, applies to these really difficult questions about, uh, for instance, how should we judge the kinds of actions that Harry Truman performed when he ordered the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? There are some people who say, well, he didn't actually do the bombing. He just signed a piece of paper and he did it because he was trying to prevent a prolonged uh, land invasion of Japan. So maybe he was a kind of hero, even though he was responsible for the deaths of all of these Japanese people. And Anska was someone who tried to, um, who simply rejected that. She wanted to apply this alternative picture she had of what makes an action intentional to say that once we really understand what an intentional action is, we'll see that what Truman did was to intentionally cause the deaths of many thousands more of Japanese people, and that made him a murderer. So... She started from this really, really theoretical, linguistic kind of fantasy, and then she comes out with what was a pretty controversial ethical conclusion at the end. Now, I don't know how much of her philosophy I agree with, uh, about 50%, I'd say, but um, there's something really, I don't know, just alive, um, intense about the way in which she does philosophy, how serious she finds it, how important she, ta uh, she finds its questions. And I think uh, if people would just discover something from the book I've written about one philosopher, it would be Anscombe, get a better sense of this way in which you can combine this interest in language and logic with this kind of moral and political urgency and intensity. Let's talk a bit about, I guess, the place of uh, universities. So there's a 
bit in the book where you kind of offhandedly mention the fact that um, Henry Sidgwick, right, this great moral philosopher, he'd been campaigning to abolish the lecture over in Cambridge. And I was curious if you knew what his case was for doing that. Yes, sure. Um, so the case is one that he made as part of um, a lecture he wrote. He titled it A Lecture Against Lecturing. And this was something he delivered as a way of trying to persuade his colleagues in Cambridge. This was, I think, the 1880s or 1890s. So Cambridge was, um, like many other of these uh, institutions, extremely old-fashioned, resistant to change of any sort. And for the longest time, the standard way in which teaching was done there, as most places and many places even now, was you had one person who came into the room wearing this gown, carrying this pile of notes, and then they proceed to read them out. If you're really lucky, they won't actually read them out. They'll actually say something um, a bit more spontaneous. But ultimately, it's about people listening and someone talking to or more often uh, talking at them. And Sidgwick's reason for disliking this was, look, it's all they're doing is reading stuff off a piece of paper. You know, we've invented the printing press now. We've had it for a few centuries. Why don't you just make copies of these notes and distribute them so that people can read them for themselves? Is there anything at all you're adding other than cementing a kind of monopoly you have over this knowledge. So you can say, you've got to come to these lectures because if you don't, then you won't know what you need to know to do well in your exams. And Sidgwick said, well, why don't you just publish this stuff, right? Let people read them at their own pace in their own way, be able to read things over and over again. Uh, wouldn't that just be a much more efficient way of doing the same thing? And the second thing he wanted to say was the kind of attitude to knowledge that lecturing encourages is one of passivity. You just think of yourself as a receiver of knowledge and you treat the person before you as a kind of authority. And there might be some disciplines or subjects where that's fair enough. Um, but there's something about philosophy where he thought that just did not apply. It's a, it's a terrible mistake to think that what your philosophy lecturer has is knowledge of philosophy. And what they're going to do is to convey that knowledge to you. So as you write down everything they say carefully, um, you will now have got knowledge. And this is a very old argument, of course. It goes as far back as Socrates, right? There's something really dubious about the thought that people can just convey philosophical understanding to you without you making any effort of your own. So the kind of model that Sidgwick proposed as an alternative was one where you give out whatever um, you want your students to read. And to the extent that you want to lecture at all, the lecture should focus on the questions they have questions um, that they raise because there's something in the reading they didn't understand or something in the reading to which they objected. So the thought is you put the onus on them. The lecture will be about whatever they want it or need it to be about. And by doing it that way, you reject this idea that you're conveying knowledge. Rather, you say you and I, student and teacher, I mean, those are just roles. Ultimately, what we are is joint seekers after truth. And there's no reason to think that I've already got there. And it might be that your questions, your objections will be a way in which we all together get closer to truth. And ultimately, I suppose this hasn't quite caught on, but I think elements of Sidgwick's idea of lecturing are um, a lot more popular now, right? It's quite unusual to find uh, lecturers who will simply pronounce things as if the mere fact that they're saying it means that it's true. So a kind of lecture which has room for interaction, for criticism, for objections. And a lecture is a place where you're actually doing philosophy, um, where philosophy is happening, alive in conversation, rather than one where the philosophy is already being done somewhere else. And now all you're doing is conveying it. I think that idea is what he was most rejecting. So, I mean, fast forward, what, more than a century. And, you know, we, we still have lectures, plus maybe 10 minutes of Q&A at the end. 
and we have something like the kind of seminar format that um, Sidgwick was describing. Um, I really enjoyed both in my time, right? Probably got more out of seminars, but I, I enjoyed lectures. But something pretty major has changed since Sidgwick as well, which is the fact that um, I think it's fair to say I learned as much on my walks to and from the lecture uh, block than I did in the lecture hall, not for any failing of the lectures, but because I could, you know, listen to podcasts, which were really, they're really good, or listen to recorded lectures from pretty much anywhere in the world. Another thing that's changed is that pretty much all the reading I did for my course, you can just find it online, like it'll take you 10 seconds and some kind of Google food to to get the stuff. And you can find the Cambridge reading list online fairly easily as well. I guess my question is, you know, where, where does this end us up when we're thinking about how we teach philosophy in the 21st century? I mean, do you think um, something needs to give or do you think the kind of institutions and kind of attitudes to pedagogy are going to change in response at some point? Yeah, thanks. I think the things you said are really interesting and they ring very true. And what they, um, the kinds of questions they raise is whether it makes sense for us to stick to these features of an old-fashioned idea of the university, similar institutions, once we have technological possibilities that allow for all these different ways in which uh, people can teach and people can learn. So I think the f- one thing that's uh, come out very clearly to me over the course of the last year is just how how advanced video conferencing technology has become, to the point where I was quite sceptical about video conferencing with more than one person at once. And now I've spent the last year just running dozens and dozens of seminars with people from you know, three continents, um, all brought together into one um, Zoom room. And the fact that it's been fine. Um, there's a little bit of awkwardness in the beginning and it takes a little bit of getting used to. But one thing it, it does is to say that it's no longer clear why universities have to be universities of a particular place. Why on earth can't we have these um, universities that don't have a kind of geographical location at all? And then once you, you go further down that uh, train of thought, it looks like, well, do there have to be universities as institutions that employ sets of people and take on people who are students at that university and not at any other? So, I, I mean, I really haven't thought all this the way through, but I know that loads of other people have. And no doubt we're going to have dozens of books and proposals of other kind, people trying to make this happen. The idea of an, an online university that isn't just a kind of substitute for people who can't make it to the real thing, but as something which in, might in some ways be better than the real thing. To point to a different thing you said in your question, Finn, there's this question of um, how restricted should access to knowledge be. And even within my own lifetime, I think I feel quite hard done by having been a child uh, just before fast internet connections became available. And anyone uh, who grows up even just 10 years after me, someone born in the, in the late 90s rather than the late 80s, as I was, um, has the internet, has YouTube, has people just sort of you know giving out information, giving out knowledge for free and often to a pretty high standard. I've listened to some philosophy YouTubers and many of them are as good as, if not better than many of my uh, colleagues, including myself. So um, I just think people are really, really lucky today. And uh, one thing that might point towards is a different idea of how universities protect their employees. Right now, it seems like we think that if we're going to have our jobs, we have to make sure that it's really hard to get hold of our stuff unless you pay loads and loads of money in tuition to a university. But and I sort of sympathize with that. You know, I rely on my salary and I certainly don't object to being paid a salary. But something seems really sad if these two sets of interests are pitched against each other, the interests of 
teachers to make a secure living on the one side, and the interest that everybody has in having free access to knowledge. Now, all I've done so far is to describe what the problem is. I don't have a solution. I don't have a solution that will um, that'll allow there to be secure incomes for people who know enough to be able to teach, uh, but in a way that doesn't create these kinds of monopolies or place restrictions and who can have access to knowledge. But I think whoever solves that problem um, will be doing something as radical as whoever the person was who transformed the medieval monastery into the modern research university. That's super interesting. And one kind of debate or, or argument that kind of comes to mind there as well in in economics is this question of where the value or like the monetary value of education comes from, because it definitely is the fact that if you really wanted to just like learn things, I mean, there's an incredible amount of resources out there. I think MIT pretty much make all of their lectures available online and yet people pay loads of money to to go to MIT. And I think it is fair to say that in large part, that's not because people are paying to learn, uh, but they're paying for the certificate at the end. And that, that signaling role, right, is is uh, in many ways more important than than the acquisition of of knowledge. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention as well to kind of bring into this is like the question of, of journals as well. Um, I mean, that's, I think, one thing that has become very like salient in my mind because I've now lost the, the .cam.ac UK uh, login code. So I'm finding like the real barriers that come up, right? Where you have all of this information, you know it costs nothing physically right for you to to read it and yet there is this enormous paywall to do uh, independent research if you're not associated with an institution and i think that is like one of those barriers that's super um relevant at the moment and also there's a loads of novel ways of these new free journals that are trying to find different different business models yeah i think that's absolutely right and again there's a general question here about the whole system of journals and the kinds of roles they play and whether what they contribute to the process of research is enough to justify the kind of monopoly they have over the dissemination of research. And maybe there are particular journals of which you can make that case, but I'm highly sceptical. I think very few philosophy journals do enough to be able to justify just how difficult it is for someone who's not already attached to an institution to get access to that sort of research. And it's particularly problematic in um, societies where research is publicly funded. It looks like you've got all of this public money going into something that's then put behind a paywall and that paywall only benefits a private company whose contribution to that research um, is at least questionable. Right, The extent of it is certainly questionable as compared to the kinds of public resources that went into actually funding the institutions, the laboratories, etc., that did the research. So we need to ask ourselves, I think, if we were trying to approach this as a philosophical question, what is a journal? What is it for? What kind of role does it play? And um, more importantly, what sort of role should it play? And one really sceptical, radical answer would be, maybe we don't need them at all, right? Maybe they're adding nothing. You say, well, hang on a second, that's maybe going a bit too far. Uh, it looks like they're doing some things, right? They um, do things like enforce certain high rigorous standards. They bring together people for the task of peer review. They do it in this reasonably predictable way. Uh, they um, cement, strengthen disciplinary standards so that people aren't just sort of making things up. They're all in part of this one conversation with each other. So all that stuff is good. The question is whether in order to have those good things, journals have to have the kind of structure that they currently do. And there are all these disciplines. I don't know a great deal about physics and maths, but you know, websites are repositories where things can be uploaded by people and um, you can have post-publication peer review where some papers will get more and more attention because people say, oh, I read something on this re online repository and I think it was really good. So 
these kinds, so the ways in which um, signaling is a function that journals do, you could replace with something else that gives you a good aspect of, um, of the signaling, right? It gives you quality control. It uh, has a kind of democratizing influence. It's not just pe- the institutions people belong to, which gets them jobs or gets them prestige, but whether they're publishing stuff that other people are citing and respecting. And I don't see any obvious reason why this couldn't be the case in humanities disciplines, including philosophy as well, where we move towards the system of um, post-publication review, where we still have standards and we're still enforcing them. What we don't have is institutions acting as gatekeepers based on often what are pretty unaccountable editorial practices. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me, so I know this is like a, a whole topic, um, but I'm really interested in it at the moment, by um, Alvaro de Menod, who kind of wrote about this replication crisis you have in the social sciences at the moment, where around half of all papers in the social sciences don't replicate. And interestingly enough, there's almost no correlation with the chance of replication and what journal it was published in. Even uh, the the very top, the very best journals uh, are just as bad as... Um, your more low level or your more entry ones. And that's super interesting because it really brings up this question of of what they are for and what alternatives would be to to make sure that work is rigorous and representative and, and all of that. That's right. And I think one other reason why this problem of replicability is is interesting is it tells us something about the kinds of incentives uh, built into the way research is currently done. And if people are only going to get credit for novel research, then there's going to be very little incentive for people to publish disconfirming studies, right? Or uh, for people even to put money, time and effort into trying to replicate results. Um, so what we need, I suppose, if we're trying to stick to something like the current system, is to see how that incentive structure could be transformed to the point where people actually have an interest in going around performing these attempts to replicate study results. If you don't have that, then what you're going to have is lots of eye-catching results being published and advancing people in their careers, but it turning out that uh, the claims that made people's name are just entirely false. The state of affairs nowadays within academic philosophy seems to me is that you you publish your work in a philosophy journal and by virtue of doing that it gets read almost entirely by other philosophers and actually just philosophers within your field Um, so you're using specialized language you're using domain specific terminology which a general audience is not going to understand Um, a lot of people don't like that they think that the audience for philosophy should be far broader it's interesting as a side note that no one makes this complaint about, you know, solid state physics or like biochemistry or something that, you know, we, we should be able to understand this, but they do it about philosophy. And um, there's a question there, which is why does philosophy get singled out as something which, you know, ought to be accessible to the public? And do you think that there's a case there? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I think I'm, um, I have a position somewhere between the two possible extremes, right? There's one way of taking the word audience where it means what it seems, right? That the, the actual people who read the stuff. But I think audience could also be understood as something like people who, if they were to read it, might get something out of it. And if you think of audience in the second sense, then um, you can have a really wide audience for philosophy in the sense that there's all these people who might get something out of it, but they might be different from the people who are actually likely to read it. And then you ask yourself, well, when you're composing a piece of philosophy, should you have the narrow sense of your audience in mind or the wider sense? 
And the answer doesn't have to be one or the other. Right? So one simple way um, to respond to this kind of problem is to say, well, we can have different bits of philosophy, some of which addresses wider audiences, some of which addresses narrow audiences. I don't think there's any problem with that, whatever. Equally, you might think that what you need is um, something like the equivalent of popular science writers. Indeed, this is something that I do myself every now and then, where I take up something that's been written about in an extremely technical way within journals, condense it, find the bit that's likeliest to be of interest to a non-specialist audience and try and communicate it as interestingly, amusingly, etc. as possible. Um, so there's that kind of model. So there's the... Um, different sorts of philosophy model. There's the let's have the specialist philosophy and let's have some popular communicators model. But I think um, there's a third, I don't know if it's a model exactly, but there's a third way of thinking about this um, this whole question here, which is uh, perhaps gets to the heart of why people say this sort of thing about philosophy and not about physics, which is with physics, they get the sense that, look, the methods of physics are basically sound. They're getting to truths and the evidence getting to these important truths is that there's all this great technology that's based on all of this fundamental physics research. So as long as the technology keeps coming, all of these you know, iPads and smartphones and things, uh, we, we're not going to complain. The trouble is that there's nothing at all equivalent in the case of philosophy you can point to and say, at least on the face of it, it doesn't look like you can point to something and say, philosophy made that, right? Um, there are people who say, well, actually, even smartphones ultimately required things like um, logic in the 19th century. And without that, we wouldn't have had the, you know, the kind of thing that allows computers to be built. I mean, that stuff is true, but it's not going to be satisfying, right? And equally, it, it may justify a small bit of philosophy where we can point to these kinds of um, practical value, but it's not going to justify um, other bits of philosophy. It's not clear why you know, there's no smartphones that have been invented as a result of research into ethics, for instance. So if we're going to make a case for the value of that kind of thing and for it being something that academics do, then I think what you need is some way in which what philosophers say to each other is in some way accountable to what non-philosophers say. So it's not just them talking their own arcane language where um, all they need to do is to satisfy their colleague standards. That, as we've already seen earlier in this conversation, is recipe for you know, repetitiveness and going around in circles, and very little good comes out of that. But I think what um, could be a productive thing is when People, philosophers who are writing, even when they're writing for their colleagues, still feel the pressure of needing to sound basically like a human being. Right? Writing about concerns that human beings outside of philosophy have, and if you're a moral philosopher, you most certainly are writing about these questions that people outside of philosophy care about, then it's important that you're able to talk in a way which can be made intelligible to people outside your discipline. And by that, I don't mean it's already intelligible. It doesn't mean that it's got to be easy or that it's got to be instantly accessible. I think very little that's any good or important is going to be instantly accessible. It's going to require a, the reader and writer meeting each other halfway. I try and make myself intelligible to you and you work hard at trying to make sense of what I'm saying. I think one thing that would be a good test here is whenever you find um, yourself saying something that you can't justify the value of to a non-philosopher. You should be at least skeptical uh, about its value. You don't have to be ultimately skeptical. You might be able to persuade them. Um, and one way in which some people persuade people of the value of their research is to show that there's a way of getting from the things you care about to the things that I'm working on. So that's going to be um, fairly clear in, in some bits of philosophy, right? So if, if you say, you know, I really care about this question of should I be a vegan or not? It turns out that if you're really going to say something interesting about that question, that's not just your opinion, then you're going to have to make arguments. That's how you, um, that's what gives philosophers their authority, that they make arguments rather than just interesting assertions. 
Then you ask, well, what kinds of arguments are these going to be? What makes something a good argument? And within a couple of steps, you'll be asking these really basic questions, questions like, what is moral worth? What makes it the case that some creatures have moral worth and other things don't? And if you start pushing that, you will be pushed to even more basic questions, questions like, um, what is worth other than moral worth? Um, are there ways in which we can distinguish between the I don't know, mental faculties of different kinds of creatures? How do we even know what's going on in animal minds? How do we know anything at all? And within about five steps, you've got this really practical question about whether you should be a vegan or not, to the question of whether knowledge is even possible. So I think just um, being able to follow that chain of why questions um, through more than just one step. I think the best defense you can make of an, a technical bit of philosophy is to show that the technicality is just a way of pursuing, in a more rigorous way, something that people care about anyway. And I think bad technicality is where it turns out that the only justification for it is that you think it's going to impress your colleagues. That's a really bad reason to uh, to, to use technicality. Finn editing here. I just realized I didn't make it clear enough that the question I'm about to ask is a bit of a straw man. So I definitely don't think that all or even most uh, effective altruists have the views I'm about to attribute to them. But you know, I was trying to be controversial. It's interesting what you say about tethering philosophy to practical questions, right? This thought that kind of abstruse, abstract questions derive from uh, really concrete uh, worries about things like what we ought to do, right? And I guess to build on what you said, there's a kind of enclave, right, within uh, at least analytic philosophy, which more or less just treats philosophy as, you know, one tool among many in this kind of arsenal of tools uh, for making the world a better place, something like that, right? Um, and these people call themselves effective altruists, right? At least some of them. They also tend to be fairly critical of kinds of philosophy or really any other academic um, pursuit which they see as useless insofar as it doesn't obviously make the world a better place even if these kinds of philosophy aren't straightforwardly meaningless right um in a sense that they're kind of they're kind of running with this kind of criterion you've come up with for when philosophy is worthwhile to a, an extreme and I want to hear your view on this kind of view of what philosophy is for, and I guess also on this kind of idea of effective altruism that has grown up from philosophy. Yeah, it's an interesting, in my experience, and it might just be my good fortune, the effective altruists I've known, had conversations with, tend to really like philosophy. And even when their official position is that philosophy is only valuable when it makes the world a better place, either directly or indirectly. Um, when they're actually doing philosophy, um, I think they treat it as being valuable for its own sake. And I think there's nothing inconsistent about that, right? So here's one way to these two things consistent. There are two questions here. One of them is, what makes something worth doing? There's a second question of, um, what motivates me to do it? And sometimes, of course, you could be the sort of person who gives the same answer to both questions. The thing that motivates you is also the thing that justifies uh, objectively the thing that you're doing. But often these two things will come apart. So it may be that what ultimately makes the thing you're doing valuable, uh, even if it's something like curing cancer, would be that, you know, you're curing cancer, you're saving lives, you're making the world a better place. But 
it could be the case that one actually keeps the cancer researcher going to the laboratory every morning, working at this really, really thankless job. It's hard, not very well paid some of the time and full of failure um, is something else. It could be the possibility of making the world a better place, but it could just be, I just really, really want to understand this biochemical reaction. And I suspect for more people than will sometimes admit this, it's the thrill of the chase. It's the pursuit of truth. It's the sense that somehow this stuff just matters. So I think it's perfectly possible for reproductive altruists to take this view. Indeed, many of them, I think, would do so. Um, so what I'd say to them, and many of them don't need it said to them because I think this is what they already think, um, is that your motivations could come apart from your justifications. And so when you're saying, you know, should there be philosophy, should it be funded, your ultimate answer to that question will be, well, it should, because some of it will make the world a better place. But it doesn't follow that people should only do the kind of philosophy that's aiming to make the world a better place. Because one of the perhaps unfortunate things about any kind of intellectual inquiry is that when you begin it, when you begin that inquiry, you don't know where it's going to end up. Right? You don't know what kinds of things are going to be useful. And so if you're going to set up institutions for research or inquiry, then you can't start on the assumption that you already know which kinds of inquiry are going to be fruitful. So if you say, right, ethics is really useful, effective altruism research is really useful, so we're only going to have that. We're going to have a department of effective altruism and all the people who do metaphysics or philosophy of science or whatever, we're going to throw them out. I think that would be a terrible idea. It would be a terrible idea because you can't be sure in advance that the next big move in effective altruism won't come because of an argument in metaphysics. And this is actually true. So some of the most interesting work I've read by uh, effective altruists, for instance, you know, Toby Ord or Will McCaskill, is extremely theoretical. Some of it is about questions in the theory of rationality, questions in decision theory, question about um, epistemology, the nature of rational belief. And if you're going to do that stuff well, then you can't just keep telling yourself, oh, but ultimately I only care about, I don't know, the nature of knowledge because it's going to be practically useful. You'll have to say it's important to get the nature of knowledge right for its own sake. So I think the most effective philosophy will be one that doesn't aim to be effective in the first instance. And if what we're trying to do is to design effective institutions, then I think those institutions will have to have room for things which may uh, turn out to be useless. The fact that we don't know which bits are going to be useless in advance means that I think we should let them, um, let them exist anyway. That sounds reasonable to me. So I think there's another really interesting question here about the like relationship of philosophy to its own history. And... You know, on one hand, it is fun and intrinsically interesting to read uh, about intellectual history. But there's a school that says that it is also positively important to at least get to know something about the history of your field and the history of philosophy in particular, in order to actually do it properly, right? And I'm actually conflicted about whether this is true. So, you know, on the other hand, I speak to my friends who study maths and they say they don't get taught anything about the history of maths, and that is completely fine, and it doesn't impede their ability to do maths well. Uh, is philosophy like maths in that respect, or is it? Is there something actually important about learning the history of, of philosophy in order to do it? In this debate, I'm probably on the side of those who think the history is important, but I also think that some of the things said on behalf of history are a little bit inflated. Uh, so here's one way of thinking about the difference between maths or indeed most um, sciences and philosophy. Even in mathematics, there's a minimal sense in which you are studying the history of maths. It's just what you're studying is the extremely recent history of maths, right? Um, and one reason why it's fine to study only the recent history and to leave the earlier history uh, behind 
is because you think of maths as making progress, making relentless, inexorable progress. So by reading the most recent stuff, um, you're getting closest to the truth. And if you read older stuff, then you're likely to get mistakes, mistakes that have since been corrected. So I think you could use that kind of model for philosophy to the extent that you're confident that philosophy is making progress in the same way as mathematics is, the sciences are. And there, um, I'm inclined to be a lot more cautious and skeptical, right? Not because I think philosophy isn't making progress on anything, but rather that we don't have any clear or agreed upon principles that would tell us what counts as progress. So whether philosophy is making progress is on the decline. Um, if you ask this to seven philosophers, you get different answers depending on their own views. And that itself is an interesting fact about philosophy. And I suspect in some particularly advanced bits of um, theoretical physics, for instance, that may also be true. Um, I suspect it'll be less true in some others. I don't think it's true in chemistry, for instance. So the question is, to what extent are the assumptions behind contemporary practice simply the matter of a consensus? Do we all agree on it? If we don't, then anything which makes us a little bit more self-conscious or self-aware about the assumptions of our practice is a good thing. Now, if you think, look, science is doing really well, it's producing all this cool stuff. Um, it doesn't look like it could be much better if people were more self-aware, then you might think it's not that important to be self-aware and certainly not to be self-aware in this kind of historical way. But in philosophy, I think you may have the opposite feeling. You may worry that too much of philosophy, to the extent that it can be repetitive and it's about making the same moves um, again and again, it's also about people just saying things that actually had been said three or 400 years ago. Indeed, it had been said better. You're just doing a worse job of, of reinventing the wheel, etc. So in those instances, I think you can make a case for studying history in two or three ways. Firstly, uh, the more history you know, the less likely you are to reinvent the wheel because you'll know it's already been invented. Second thing you'll be aware of is just the connection between what philosophical claims people make and the kinds of background assumptions they just take for granted. And... Uh, looking at a historical period where those assumptions weren't taken for granted is a really good way of realizing that nothing is obvious in philosophy. Everything is up for grabs. And there's maybe a third thing here, which is about what a piece of philosophy is. So um, another analogy we might use in this connection is literature, right? There's very few people who'd say, oh, now that we have the novel, we don't have to read Shakespeare anymore. You don't think of literature or indeed music as making progress. It's not like because we have I don't know, punk music, we should stop listening to Mozart. No one thinks of, of these things as um, getting better over time, getting closer to the truth. Now, the question is whether anything about philosophy means that we can treat it in the way that we treat music or literature. And there's one thing about it, which I think does um, look a little bit like literature, which is that where things like mathematics are purely cognitive, right? The thing they're doing is trying to get to truth. And the closer they're getting to truth, the further along they are in this march of progress. But I don't think music is about truth at all. And I want to say that at least one aspect of philosophy, philosophical activity, philosophical writing is, I don't know if there's a good word for this, I'm just going to pick one at random. I'm going to call it the expressive dimension. One of the things philosophy does is to express a certain kind of outlook or sensibility towards the world. And that can be interesting in its own right. It can be worth looking at in its own right, in the same way that, um, you know, old bits of music from several centuries ago, old paintings and so forth can be, uh, can be interesting to look at or listen to. So I, I want to say that at least some philosophy has those kinds of aesthetic virtues. And I think they're genuine virtues, they're important virtues. And there's, I don't see it as a problem for um, philosophy that it has this other dimension. I don't think it makes it worse at seeking truth that 
it also does some things other than seeking the truth. So there's two questions we ask at the end of every interview. Um, the first one is, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, somewhat disappointingly, and the risk of sounding horribly dogmatic, I don't think there is a significant thing I've changed my mind about. But there's, a, there's an explanation for that, which is that I'm generally resistant to making up my mind about things in the first place. So it's, um, I think my general state of mind is one of... Uh, of uncertainty anyway. So I think with lots of things, I, I prefer not to have opinions. And I find it quite difficult and oppressive when people suddenly throw all these questions at me and saying, what do you think about that? This relentless pressure that we have to have a kind of hot take available uh, on one of the more destructive aspects of uh, modern life. So um, I'd say that what I try to do is to defer making up my mind about significant things until I'm really, really forced to. Uh, and so one thing that means is that my general attitude to the world is one of kind of open-minded curiosity. Um, so with lots of things, I wouldn't say uh, I've gone through anything as much as a change of mind. I think what happens a lot more often is where talking to someone and listening to someone brings me to see that it is a good thing that I didn't make up my mind about this because there was a lot more there uh, that was worth thinking about before um, I, I came to that stage. That, that's a very fair answer. Let me try and rephrase it then. Uh, to to fit that uh, approach uh, better. Is there anything that you recently came across that was a very novel thing that you learned or that made you really ponder um, your your existing uh, beliefs, even if they are not uh, set in stone? Yeah, it's an awful thing, but I can't think of a particular example or rather something that's significant enough to be worth talking about. I feel like most of the kinds of things that uh, change my outlook on things tends to be reading either a bad review of something I really liked, like a film or a book or whatever, or a good review of something I really disliked. And one thing that they get me thinking about is just how little I see or how unperceptive I am when I, and this is particularly the case when I thought this was a kind of rubbish film and I realized that someone else just found all these depths in it. And what it does is just reveal how um, shallow I can be. So most recently it was uh, this film called, gosh, what's it called? Memories of a Murder. It's a great film. Uh, it, it was a great film. And again, I just thought it was that kind of standard issue detective drama. It was all right. And then I go and read these essays about it. And then I realized there was just so much in there, right? Just you learn something about, for want of a better phrase, what it's like to be human from watching this procedural set in 1980 South Korea. Um, so those are the kinds of things I'm constantly getting, I think. It's one reason why I just love reading um, criticism. Uh, it's always telling me how impoverished my own perceptions are. That's really funny. And the thing that worries me is when it happens in the reverse direction, right? Where you watch a film and you completely love it. And then you log on and read all the reviews. And, you know, the critics you most admire are just like slating this film. And you feel yourself changing your mind. Um, it's like really hard to hold on to that original conviction. I'm just like so much more easily convinced by kind of impressive sounding people than I like to admit to myself. <laughs> I mean, there's bad ways of doing that, but there's also good ways of doing it, right? So it could be that you just missed all these features because you just weren't looking very closely. I think that the place where this happened to me in the most um, life-changing way when I was about 15 years old was watching a, a film called Dead Poets Society. I thought it was deeply moving and inspiring about like the value of art and poetry and so forth. And I read this review by um, Roger Ebert, a pretty famous um, film critic. And he basically said, this is soppy, it's sentimental, it doesn't really understand the point of poetry, and um, it portrays this pretty ugly kind of picture of, of human life. And I remember kind of reading it saying, this is just wrong, I can't read this guy anymore. And then a moment later, I was like, gosh, 
this this could be right. This could be right. It's just me as this kind of quite sentimental 15-year-old who was just in a state taken in by what was actually what I now think is definitely a, a pretty shallow vision of uh, of life and art and all the rest of it. So that was a case where I'm pleased that happened. I think it improved my taste. I think it made me a little bit less easily taken in by um, rousing music while people recite, I don't know, Walt Whitman while standing on benches. Um, and yeah, I'm really grateful for that. I'm always like really impressed as well by just how much people care like to review these things like you get these like two hour video essays on like the Pirates of the Caribbean and somebody's really taking the time and that passion right to like really channel their their view across. Okay I guess this leads on nicely to the last question then if we're on the topic of of media and uh, things to read and things to watch. Um, Could you name like three books or articles or films or what have you uh, that you would recommend to anyone who's interested in finding out more about uh, anything we've talked about? Sure, happily. So um, maybe one film, which is a very weird film, and I'm not sure I can recommend it exactly, but it is really interesting. It's a film by um, a director called Derek Jarman, and it's a film about the life of Wittgenstein. And I say it's a weird film because it's kind of um, more like a stage play filmed and it's got all these bits of dialogue that just consist in random lines of Wittgenstein spliced together. But somehow it's bizarrely compelling. And there's something about the central performance. So people who actually knew Wittgenstein, who saw um, the actor who, who, who played him in it, just said it was uncanny, just how much he managed to evoke the feeling of being in a room with the guy. So, um, you know, obviously I was born far too late to, to have had the chance to meet him. So um, I like it because it gives you that sense of weirdness around him. And he is very much the dominant figure of the kind of tradition we've discussed, um, even if he's more of a Cambridge figure. And yeah, so I'd recommend that for people who want to get some kind of flavor of what it was like, um, though I wouldn't advise anyone to take any of the philosophical discussion in it seriously. Um, so another video on uh, now available on YouTube is um, a conversation between the broadcaster Brian McGee and the philosopher Bernard Williams about, I think it's called something like the history of linguistic philosophy or something like that. And it's one of the conversations which apparently you could have on the BBC in the 70s and 80s where you just get someone wearing a tweed jacket and a chair and talk to them. And now, or maybe we can do that again. It's just now we do them on podcasts rather than the people. <laughs> For some reason, people with a long attention span seem to uh, gravitate towards podcasts instead. Yeah, so it's, it's a fun conversation. I think it's a really good, accurate and reliable discussion of this whole tradition. Many of other things I've said are basically drawn from some of the things William says in the course of that conversation. And also just a, a really good example of what a piece of philosophy broadcasting might be like that doesn't patronize or condescend to its audiences. It takes them seriously, but it also tries to explain things to them without the use of unnecessary jargon. And um, as far as articles are concerned, maybe in the same sort of subject, there's an article which I disagree really strongly with, but I found really useful while I was writing my book. And it's by a philosopher called Jonathan Ray. And it's published in a journal called Radical Philosophy, and it's called English Philosophy in the 50s. And Ray is, or at least was at this stage, a kind of Marxist philosopher. And roughly in the spirit of one of your questions, Finn, um, Ray thinks that even though there was all this excitement around all this new philosophy in the 50s, ultimately it was done by this bunch of white middle class public school boys, bourgeois to the core. And he really assembles the case for the prosecution about as powerfully as I've ever seen anybody do it. So um, I really enjoy it. I think it's asking all the right questions. I think there is a more generous, more charitable kind of way of looking at this tradition. And that's what I hope to try to do in, in, in my book. Um, but it's a good thing for people to know that not everybody did like it. Lots of people thought that the whole thing was a big fraud and that it was one big um, bourgeois conspiracy 
against the working classes. And so Jonathan Ray's article is a good way of getting a sense of why some people disliked it. And if listeners want to keep up with your own work, is there anything you can plug uh, that can be useful to them? Yes. Um, and now it just occurs to me that the big kind of thing I changed my mind about recently was on the value of using social media. I had a particularly experience of um, having quite random people attack something utterly innocuous, I said, uh, about eight months ago. It's a minor historical point, and I was so befuddled by it that I decided that I wasn't going to go off the cesspool that is Twitter again. So, yeah, I used to think Twitter was a really good thing. Now I think it's a terrible thing, and um, for the good of the human race, which it seems to uh, so that's one place where I think I do have an opinion. Uh, so instead, where you can find me if you really uh, are interested in some of the things I've said is my website, which is just nikhilkrishnan.org. And there's a section in it called Journalism, where I put up recent articles and reviews, um, published in newspapers and magazines, and um, very few of them have any jargon in them. So anyone who's interested in this and is not an academic philosopher might find something interesting about my views on philosophy, history, art, politics, etc. somewhere on that website. Nikhil Krishnan, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. That was Nikhil Krishnan on the history and future of analytic philosophy. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Nikhil. That's N-I-K-H-I-L. There you'll find links to all the books and papers and films Nikhil mentioned, along with a load more information as well. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's a new star rating form at the top and bottom of each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, hate mail, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us to continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.